Hi, and welcome to an episode of The Lawdown. We've been away for a little while, but we're back with a vengeance. And we'll be giving you the other side of the stories in the news and dealing with the legal issues. So today I am joined by two of my colleagues. My name is Wanu Sander. I am a senior associate at CM Murray. And I'm here with two of my colleagues, uh, Pooja Dasgupta um, and Beth Hale. Uh, we all specialize in employment and partnership law. And today we're going to be discussing three key things that have popped up in the news recently um, that are issues that we thought were quite interesting. The first is to do with Naomi Osaka, who recently withdrew from the French Open. Uh, the second is to do with Gary Lineker and his issues with HMRC. And thirdly, we're going to talk about some of the issues that some of us might have been having as we've been re-emerged into the new world post-lockdown. So to start off is our story about Naomi Osaka. So you will know that she is the world number two. She's 23 and she recently withdrew from the French Open after there was some controversy over her refusal to speak to the media at the tournament. She announced this move after she said that she'd been suffering long bouts of depression since she won the first Grand Slam title in 2018. So she said she was not going to do any more news conferences to protect her mental health. In response, uh, she was fined about $15,000 uh, for not doing um, her first post-match after she won um, the opening match against Patricia Maria Tigg. And they were allowed to do that because the rules did allow them to do it. Uh, and following that, four of the other, the Grand Slams, brought out a statement and said that she could also face more substantial fines if she continued not to do media appearances, hence her, her dropping out of the um, French Open. So this really does present some really interesting issues around mental health, um, health and safety in the workplace, what the responsibilities of an employer might be in circumstances where, you, where you're deal dealing with this in the workplace. So for Naomi, obviously she's a tennis player, you know, the Open isn't her employer, um, but, but a lot of other employ employees who may have similar situations, maybe dealing with depression and anxiety, um, they may be faced with these sorts of issues and how does an employer go about dealing with it? So um, Beth, one of the issues I know comes up in our practice a lot is the responsibilities that an employer has to provide a safe uh, workspace, a safe working environment. And can you tell us a little bit more about what those obligations are and how it might impact in a situation like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think key to this is obviously, as you've said, that Naomi Osaka is not an employee, but um, and that really impacts because what she has is a contractual arrangement and that sort of impacts what we're discussing. But I think for employers, the key thing that they they need to remember is that they have an obligation to provide a safe place of work. And that doesn't just include making sure that people have uh, ergonomic desks set up. It doesn't just include making sure that there aren't physical dangers in the workplace. It also includes making sure that they're providing a, a workplace which is free from threats to mental well-being. And that is challenging for employers for lots of reasons. Um, one is um, different people find different things challenging from a mental health perspective. 
Um, and uh, another is there are often in, in almost any workplace, there will be stressors. There will be things which cause people stress. There will work is not, you know, a, a lot of jobs are difficult and can be stressful. So it's, it's difficult to remove, impossible to remove any uh, sort of threats to, to mental well-being, I think. Um, and so what's important for employers is applying their mind properly to what they can do to improve um, mental well-being in the workplace applying their mind to how they can assist people who are struggling um, and how they can spot signs of, of people being in difficulties. Yeah, and I, I think as well for employers, it's quite important that they do take this into account when they're undertaking their risk assessments. So it might, as you say, it might not be something that's physical, but mental health is just as important. And there may be things within the workplace um, that could exacerbate somebody's um, mental health um, difficulties or could be the cause of it. And so it's for employers to identify those risks, see how they can um, combat those. And as you say, if there's anything they can put in place to support, um, then put those um, measures in place. Yeah, and I think particularly sort of spotting where high risk areas are in your workplace and in your workforce particularly. So not just doing, not just taking a sort of blanket approach, but looking at you know, different departments, different um, divisions, different teams within your workforce and thinking about whether there are any particular um, exacerbating features within that, you know, uh, for example, in a law firm, you might think about whether there's a particular department which does particularly long hours, whether, you know, a particular department which has particularly demanding clients, whether that's long term or whether there are particular short term stressors as well. So thinking about, you know, is there a particular matter that's on at the moment? Is there a particular job or project that people are working on, which is creating, um, you know, a particular set of circumstances? So it's just sort of really keeping that at the forefront of your mind as an employer at all times. And I guess the situation also applies almost similar to what's happened to Naomi Osaka, where it could be the very fact of the environment or it could be a, a personal um, situation that's given rise to the, to the mental health issues. So I, it's for an employer to look out for both. So, you know, the stresses in the workplace, but also somebody could just be suffering from mental health um, difficulties. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and importantly, employers, you know, you're... you're your obligations there are not sort of absolute you can't you, you as I said you can't remove all stressors from the workplace you can't in the same way that you can't remove all physical dangers you know people still have to walk upstairs and they, you know they, they, there will always be things which present some level of risk and, and that you know it's impossible to remove that but it's um you know it's about sort of just thinking about what what you can do what you can reasonably do as an employer to, to minimize those risks. And then what happens on the other side of things? So I think people don't automatically think that mental health will fall into the category of disability, um, but it can do. And when it does, it does give rise to additional obligations on an employer um, to make accommodations for somebody that may be disabled, because that can involve having a, a mental impairment um, that does affect you on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's in very high level, <laughs> the general definition. That's also um, been long term, so which long term. more than 12 months. Um, and so when employers are thinking about, you know, what obligations are on them in that situation, what other things do they need to take into account? So obviously they've got the duty to make reasonable adjustments, which again, if, if in this case she had had an employer, that might include 
making an adjustment so she wouldn't have to potentially do the interviews or shifting around the time that she might have to do it or giving her support to enable her to do it um, if she was put at a substantial disadvantage compared to people who aren't um, suffering from the same disability. Um, and there's also, you know, just straightforward um, direct disability discrimination, so not treating her differently because of the fact that she potentially is disabled um, because she has this uh, uh, mental impairment. Um, and so, yeah, what other things are there for employers to think about around how they can make sure they can assist their employees who may be suffering from a disability because of um, a mental impairment? I think the key thing is that we, we talk a lot about reasonable adjustments and I, I think often the word reasonable gets slightly forgotten in there that it's not you know again you're not required as an employer to remove all risk um, and when you're assessing what is reasonable for an employer to do um, you have to think about the particular employer the particular circumstance of the employer their the, the sort of um, their means their size their what what can reasonably be done um, and so it's not that you you know it's, it's not that you have to make um, absolutely all adjustments which are requested or recommended you you know it, it is an employer decision to determine what is reasonable in all the circumstances um, and so that and that will vary from employer to employer and indeed from employee to employee yeah and I guess it's for the like you say for the employer to um, consider that step back and look at what their individual circumstances are. Um, so really, that's not generally if they've properly applied their mind to it, if they've thought about it and sort of said, well, here's what we can reasonably do and here's what we can't do, and this is why that's not reasonable, then it's pretty, it becomes pretty hard to criticise unless there's a real obvious oversight. Yeah. And so this takes us to our second story, um, which has been in the news recently. Um, and that's Gary Lineker. Uh, so I'll hand over to you, Beth, to fill us in about what's going, what's been going on with yeah, him. I, think, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sort of pass the buck on to, to Pooja. So Gary Lineker has been in the news. I mean, he's, Gary Lineker's always in the news for all sorts of reasons. Um, yeah. But on this occasion, he's in the news about tax, which um, it's probably doesn't seem that interesting to lots of to lots of people, but quite interesting to lawyers. Um, and can you just explain why he's in the news and what what the case is all about? Yeah, sure, Beth. And I think firstly, it's just worth mentioning that um, obviously we aren't, you know, tax experts, but these kind of issues we really do need to grapple with because um, often our clients will have kind of queries about IR35, but then also the potential employment law implications as well. If if a client, an end client kind of engages someone who does actually fall within the IR35 rules. So Can you start it, just by telling me what IR35 is? Yes, absolutely. So um, IR35 is often referred to as the intermediaries legislation and it's essentially an anti-tax avoidance regime to um, prevent the use of structures that are typically designed to avoid the tax consequences that are associated with being an employee. So typically you have a scenario where a worker provides um, a service to a client and they, they might be engaged through an intermediary and there's ordinarily no written contract between the worker and the intermediary but there is a contract between the intermediary and the client. Now IR35 as a regime imagines a hypothetical contract between the worker and the end client effectively seeing through the intermediary and then determining whether that worker should be taxed as an employee. So you, you essentially need to construct this hypothetical contract between the client and the individual providing the service and then apply well-established case law principles 
to determine whether that hypothetical contract would constitute a contract of employment. Um, and um, I think there is some um, real overlap between the factors that you would consider in um, a kind of tax context and also um, when employment tribunals would also be looking at status as well, that there's an overlap of, of the factors that are considered. Um, so there have been a lot of recent IR35 cases heard in the tax tribunals including some brought against high-profile celebrities such as Gary Lineker. And um, in Gary Lineker's case, um, so HMRC are pursuing him for um, a huge amount of tax and national insurance contributions owed for work that he performed for the BBC and BT Sport in recent years. Um, and I think the main thing to take away from it is that it shows that HMRC are taking this issue very seriously um, and compliance with the I-35 regime seriously. but it's quite interesting to see that HMRC have been unsuccessful in some of these cases against these high profile presenters. So I think Lorraine Kelly was another who won her case. And that, I think it's brought into question um, whether the regime itself might be somewhat overcomplicated and it might actually give rise to unfounded determinations um, in relation to non-compliance. And I think a key difficulty is that these tribunal decisions um, are extremely unpredictable. Um, each case is really fact-driven. And I think you need to take early advice, um, early tax advice, um, you know, potential employment law advice, depending on what the, the circumstances are, just to kind of assess the factual matrix and work out whether or not the, the individual falls within the I-35 regime. And there is actually, HMRC's got a, um, a tool, it's called the CESS tool, that you can actually access um, I think it's a series of yes or no questions and, and HMRC has said that they will be bound by the outcome of that tool so you can rely on that but I think you really need to go a bit further so in a nutshell that's what IR35 is and um, how HMRC I think are viewing it at the moment. What I always think about is it's, it's obviously really unhelpful isn't it that the tests for the the employment status tests differ between employment law so what the tribunal employment tribunal would look at and tax and as you say there are lots of overlaps there and they're very similar in lots of ways but we don't have one kind of one regime and there's also um you're you're as you've rightly identified that you're basing it so much on the very particular facts and on case law so there's no sort of statutory um provision which says this is exactly what and and it varies also unhelpfully between different employment statutes different employment legislation so there's just a it's a really really complex area and I think there's that you know people often expect there to be a kind of you know you put you put your status through your you answer the questions on the cess tool and you ping up with an answer and it just even you know from an employment law perspective and from a tax perspective it's just there's so much murky ground there um yeah. and I think it's really difficult for people I'm not sure having said that that having legislation which sets out the test would necessarily solve that because I think you'd still be applying a complicated test or a complicated set of facts but yeah I, I agree Beth I think that um there there have been calls for kind of reform in this area and the Taylor review I think it's back in 2017 called for kind of like greater clarification and simplicity of and and somehow kind of welding the two together because obviously it's not ideal that you have a kind of one regime for the, the tax status decisions and something else for you know employment rights protection purposes and I think sometimes it's easy to forget that um, you know being classified as an employee for tax purposes will not directly confer any employment rights on that individual I think then that will really depend 
as you say, on the facts and the various factors that will be considered at, um, by the tribunal. Um, but it will be interesting to see what the impact will be in terms of how people, how business clients engage with um, the individuals who provide the services. You know, will they continue to keep them in a, in a kind of contract capacity or will they uh, move into employment relationships if, um, you know, the individual wants more job security and doesn't actually enjoy this kind of halfway house that they might be left in where they're taxed as an employee but they don't actually get any of the statutory protection that um, from an employment law perspective that an employee would have so maybe we'll start to see trends of you know people moving away from the kind of self-employed status yeah we often have this weird middle ground in employment law as well which is we, we you don't just have employment employment and self-employed you also have this sort of weird worker status mm. which is what a lot of the key cases have turned on so the uber case for example which went all the way to all the way to the supreme court turns on whether those drivers are workers not on whether they're employees and so there's you know that their tax status is a separate issue and it's all it's just a sort of big sort of murky um confusion in a lot of ways and i think um yeah it's 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 sort of ripe for some kind of clarification but where that clarification comes from and how is pretty unclear to me as well indeed so I think that then leads us on to our final topic, unless unless you had anything else to say on our 35 there? No, I'm good, thanks. Okay, so um, our third and final topic that we just wanted to discuss was um, so recently, um, I think Wanu and I have both experienced this actually in, in real life, the issue of entering hospitality venues after the easing of certain lockdown restrictions and the potential impact of the COVID electronic test and trace rules on people who, who might not necessarily have um, the same access to technology. So in terms of my own experience recently, um, I went to a um, venue, a hospitality venue, which I won't name for present purposes, but um, with a friend and um, my friends didn't have, I, I think for her, I think it was just an internet connection, but she didn't have access to um, the QR code check-in facility. So that function. So um, she asked as an alternative if she could write down her contact details um, instead. And actually they said, no, you can't. If you can't access the QR code, then in fact you can't come in. So she was, so we ultimately went elsewhere. Um, and I think one of you had a similar similar experience recently as well, didn't you? Um, yeah, so that was just personally going to um, a pop garden and realizing that I really needed to use my phone <laughs> just to be able to order some food and drink. Um, and if you didn't have that, there, there didn't seem to be a way for them to, to take your order ordinarily. And I think that is the trend. That is the direction we're going in as, as restrictions are easing and, and we're trying to make a kind of COVID safe world where we can all still um, meet people and, and go out. Uh, that's what that's what we're going to be seeing. Um, but as you say, it does have a potential wider impact on certain groups of people who may not be um, as familiar or may not have as much access to that sort of technology. Um, and that can typically be, or it could be other groups of people, as you say, like your friend, but it could typically be um, older people who may not be as familiar with certain technology, may not carry it out with them all the time. Um, or it could be disabled people who could be um, disparately kind of impacted by a rule that seemingly is applying to everybody, 
um, but could have a, a kind of disproportionate impact on them. And, and we just thought, you know, as we are on, as sort of unlocking, it really is for businesses, for workplaces as well, actually, to think about how things that will seem to be a development in accessibility and supposed to be helpful to people may have may have an impact on on other groups of people that they may not have thought about now i think as i understand it the way that the system does work um hospitality venues are supposed to allow their visitors to provide an alternative way of providing that information so if they don't have a phone they're supposed to allow them to provide um an, an address an email address or a postal address even you know going back to, to those days when people received posts um so that they are able to be informed if they need to be um by nhs uh, test and trace but of course i think a lot of businesses may not understand or feel fully appreciate the extent of their um obligations and may just want to do it in one way and not realize that they really should be um, offering alternative ways for people to be able to um access their venues yeah i absolutely agree and actually the government guidance is quite clear on that that you, you shouldn't make the specific use of the NHS QR code a precondition of entry. So it strikes me as that if you look into kind of indirect discrimination a bit further, I think they might fall down on the kind of objective justification point if they, you know, there is an alternative and they can't show that it's a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. I think they will struggle with the legal test of, of justifying um, that. And I think um, there are also, um, certain data protection wider data protection implications as well as well as the kind of indirect discrimination aspects but I think um or just on this topic in terms of um the collection of data I think um mm -hmm. we are now kind of divulging so much more of our personal data nowadays than ever before um and I think it's important for individuals as well to be kind of aware of um how their data should be used in accordance with GDPR and actually if you feel your data is being misused in some way you know what your recourse might be um, and for obviously businesses to comply and um, obviously in this context for the NHS distance trace records need to be held for 21 days by venues after which time that information needs to be securely disposed of or deleted um, so businesses need to re really think about that and be you know be careful about how they collect their data the, the reasons that's why um some venues are saying just do it through the app because we don't want that that they don't want to take on that responsibility yeah. of, of complying yeah. with data protection because if they do it through the app yeah. it's just not their problem whereas if, if they've got these lists of names and phone numbers it's it's you know then, then they have to work out what to do with it they have to have a privacy policy they have to have a you know a retention policy they, all of those things so it's yeah. much more complicated for them uh, yeah, I suspect so. It's just having that kind of alternative if somebody really can't access the QR code for some reason. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about what they are, they might have to do with it because if it is just on scrawled on a piece of paper somewhere and you know, bar staff forget where they put it, that's clearly going to be in breach of the GDPR in terms of making sure that they've got proper systems to, to secure people's data. Um, so thinking ahead about the fact that not everybody may be able to do it through the NHS test and trace app. Not everyone will be able to do it through the own, you know, the hospitality venue's own app um, and thinking about how they will then deal with that data in those circumstances um, is a good thing to be doing. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're, you know, significant sympathy to those hospitality, hospi I can't say that word, hospitality venues <laughs> who've had, you know, they, they've had a lot to deal with um, and, you know, been closed for months on end and actually sort of having to suddenly having these new obligations is, is hard for these, yeah. a lot of which a lot of them are really small businesses um, without much infrastructure. Um, 
yeah so I think it's it's really it's a whole new thing that they have to suddenly manage that they've never had to think about before so I think that's really challenging for them and the last thing they want to be exposed to is then kind of customer complaints and Yes. Um, people pursuing things in it literally just the the yeah exactly <laughs> well i think that wraps us up for um the relaunch of the law down episodes um so thank you for joining us we hope you enjoyed that podcast um and if you want to find out more information we have plenty of information on, on our website articles other podcasts um, and you can just go to our website, which is www.cm-murray.com. As I said, I've been Wani Sander. I am a, um, an associate, senior associate at CM Murray. My colleagues, Hel, uh, a partner, and Pooja Daskipfer, an associate at CM Murray. It's been a pleasure to be with you today, and hopefully you will join us on our next Law Down, which we hope to be continuing more frequently. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much.